Stephen has been brought before the religious tribunal. They've argued with him. They've lost the arguments. They've got some people to lie about his character and say some things about him. Uh, They're losing that. In the end, we know what happens is he's going to be martyred for his faith. But these verses pick up uh, right in in the middle of of that uh, so-called trial, that hearing. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And that is where we will stop for this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us, uh, who is with us as we study scriptures together. Help us to listen. Help us to actively listen while you're being active in our hearts, bringing us what we need out of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. To me, this has always been one of the funniest stories, and you can see if you agree. When Born to Run almost was the unofficial theme of Jersey's youth. Back in 1980, this guy from New Jersey named Bruce Springsteen had burst on the scene. And uh, he's known, he's, he, you talk about New Jersey uh, musicians, you'd probably mention him first, then you'd talk maybe about Bon Jovi and some of those others, but Bruce Springsteen is kind of synonymous with New Jersey, and he made it that way. One time, it was almost the official rock anthem of the state. Project was the brainchild of Carol Miller, a DJ at the station in New York. Uh, She's still, I hear her sometimes on on stations on the satellite radio, but Carol Miller, and and, uh, she would keep playing the song Born to Run, and she's jokingly referred to it as New Jersey's state uh, anthem. Uh, Somebody on the board whose father was an assemblyman from New Jersey uh, talked about maybe making this the actual state song of New Jersey. And along with his colleagues, they uh, came up with this resolution from the assembly of New Jersey. Whereas Bruce Springsteen, who was born in 1949 in Freehold, Monmouth County, and grew up amid the friendly, tranquil, small-town atmosphere 
that exists in that historic county seat, who came to know well in his youth the sights, sounds, and styles of summer life on the beach and boardwalk of nearby Asbury Park, today is recognized as one of pop music's most talented and outstanding performers, etc., etc. Whereas Bruce Springsteen's talents as a singer-songwriter from his debut album, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, through his dramatically soul and Latin-tinged album, The Wild, The Innocent, and E Street Shuffle, to his current album, Born to Run, whose title song has achieved anthem-like status throughout the world, has been adopted as their song by the teenagers of New Jersey. And whereas Bruce Springsteen's live performances, etc., etc., all serve to enhance his well-earned reputation as New Jersey's pop music ambassador to America. Now, therefore, by the way, they did this because they told each other that if they made this, then the youth would be interested in politics again, and they'd have faith in politics. So be it resolved that this legislature salutes the outstanding musical talents, abilities, and achievements of Bruce Springsteen, pays tribute to his preeminent status as an artist and performer, commends him, etc., etc., wishing him continued success, that thus legislature declares Bruce Springsteen to be the New Jersey pop music ambassador to America and calls upon the young people of all ages throughout New Jersey to adopt his songs and his song, Born to Run, as the unofficial rock theme of our state's youth, etc., etc. The resolution passed the assembly on June 12, 1980 by voice vote, but it never made it through the state senate, presumably because the senators listened to the lyrics and realized that the song is about a desire to get out of New Jersey. I remember as a kid, I'm a 17-year-old clodhopper in Iowa, uh, driving a tractor uh, from the farm, moving these hay bales, and it's at night, and I've got the album station from Omaha tuned in, and, and they uh, played the, 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 they had a show called The Side Show, they played a side from this album. And I remember singing along with this album. You know what, you know what the state song said? Baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. We've got to get out while we're young. Tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. And they were going to make this the song of New Jersey, and it's all about getting out. I knew that as a 17-year-old. It was about getting out of where you were and about dissatisfaction. Listen, a couple things you could learn from this funny story. One is I don't think that any of us are as cool as we like to think we are, and as hip and as with it. Second, I guess you need to read what's in it before you endorse it. Don't say we've got to pass this bill and then we'll find out what's in it, for instance. And what was going on with these people that brought Stephen to trial, remember their accusation against him? He is speaking against Moses. He is speaking against God. When they said speaking against Moses, they're referencing the whole scripture, the writings of Moses, the law of Moses, the scriptures. He's against the scriptures. Remember, we pointed out even last week that being against the scriptures would not include doing what they did, which is what? Getting people to lie against him. you got to know what's in it. So they said, Stephen, what's your answer to all these charges. How do you respond? Give us your defense. And Stephen's defense was not what we would think the defense would be. Maybe we would expect him to say, you know, um, you've paid people to lie about me. 
that's my defense, it's not true. We would expect his defense maybe to say, you and I are closer together than we think. Uh, you're just looking at scripture one way, I'm the other way, but we both like scripture. No, his defense was not a typical defense to save his life or exonerate his good name. His quote-unquote defense was to say, you profess to love the Bible so much, now let me tell you, you teachers of the Bible, what's actually in the Bible. And he gives this history and this explanation of where they were and what the Christian faith is about and how the Old Testament merges into the New. Begins with Abraham, where we'll begin. And it's very amazing how this relevant text for that day is for us today. Three things that we'll learn about God's dealing with his people from looking at the life of Abraham as told by Stephen. Three things. One, the call to renounce the world. Two, the promise to those who obey. Three, the special relationship God has with his people. First, the call to renounce the world. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. He said, Get out. And it recounts how God came to Abraham. He was just a good old guy minding his own business from all we can see. And God appeared to him and called him out. He said, Get out. I've got a place for you, and it's not here. You've got to leave. There's something that Abraham had been born into. Land and kindred. It's where your roots are. It's your protection. It's your security. Uh, there is a strong identity in our roots. Where we're at, where we're from, where we sprang from. I think about it. If I'm driving back to the Midwest, well, once I hit the Mississippi, and depending on the season of the year, but I always look at the cornfields. And there's something that, that wells up that, that's, that's, that's my roots. He had his roots. He had his stuff he was born with. He had the familiar. And God uprooted him and told him to go. And that is not easy to go from where you were to where God wants you. For Jesus to say to the disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and upend their family business. He's going to score a touchdown. Watch this. He's going to get there. All right. For Jesus to say, leave your fishing boats or leave your tax table. If you're a political zealot, to leave it at that and follow me. Leave behind your leanings, your inclinations, your family stuff and get out and go. That was God's call to Abraham. That was Jesus' call to the disciples. There is a place we're born and a place that God calls us from. Get out of your land. It talks about how Abraham went part way to where God wanted him, took his father with him. Then his father died and God removed him from that halfway place and brought him to what would become Israel. Question, 
Is there a call for Christians to get out? Is there a call to get out if you're a Christian? 1 John 2.15. Scariest verse in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's an orientation that we're born into. And we are called out. Mark 10, 28 through 30. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. Think of the comprehensiveness of that. Jesus said, there's no one who's left any of these things, all of these things, I should say, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But there is a definite shift that goes on. Being a Christian is more than just repeating the words in an emotional setting of, of asking Jesus into your heart or whatever the language is and then saying, go your way and then figure it out later if you want to become a follower of Christ, take the next step. Christianity is that stark of a calling. Don't miss the fact that leaving was radical. It's not like today even. See, I can leave the heartland, but I can go back. I can listen to songs. I can see pictures. I can talk. Boy, I can talk to my parents retired down there in Branson, Missouri, and we can reminisce, and, and we can do all that stuff. Leaving in those days was more drastic. It's drastic as I look back and think of Bruno and Carini having a baby here, and, and Carini's mom calling her every day from Brazil and couldn't be here. There's a leaving that's drastic, but even Abraham's leaving, he didn't have the text, he didn't have the news, he didn't have the, the, the cheap flights, he didn't have that. He left. He was called out of where he was into something else. And Stephen is pointing that out as he's laying out a defense of the scripture and what the gospel is. Leaving meant leaving. And I will say... Christianity is leaving the world. It's as radical as passing from the land of death to the land of life. Corresponding with the call for Christians to get out is the promise by God that he will get you out. Abraham wasn't just a, a young guy heading down to Asbury Park saying, uh, Baby, this town rips the bones from your back. This is a death trap. This is a suicide. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go seek my fortune in the world. I can do that. It's a small world after all. He was minding his own business. God came to him and said, get out. Corresponding with the disciples, God came to them and said, follow me. Corresponding with you in your salvation, God calling you, God opening your heart, Yes, you are to follow, but God's behind you pushing and God's ahead of you pulling. And, and the initiative here is God's. God appeared to him. 
God sought him and told him. And then it was God who completed his journey to the Lord's place for him. Ezekiel 34, verses 12 and following. Listen to these verses and think about God making his promise in leading and pulling his people from one place to another. Listen to this. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and scatter them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And God says there is a getting out. There's a place where you are, and that's not the place where you're supposed to be. I'm going to get you. One of the church fathers, and I didn't write down which one, I think it might have been Chrysostom, because what I was reading was, had a lot of him, uh, said this. And he's talking about what are the country, what are kinsfolk, what is your father's house, what do these phrases mean, how do they parallel? It was an interesting way for him to, 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 to proclaim this and, and break this down to his congregation. Country, the resources of this world and earthly wealth. Don't be fooled. How secure are you really, financially? How secure are you in anything, really? What can happen? Herb and I have talked about this because I've seen the pictures of, of Germany between the wars or in the lull between the one great war is a better way to put it, I think. But wheelbarrows full of cash and somebody's taken this wheelbarrow full of paper bills to go in and trade it for one loaf of bread. Think about it. You don't know. And that tsunami that hit those people and that can hit us at any time, we don't know. We, we've had a little bit of a housing bubble. We've had a little bit of lockdowns. We've had a little bit of this. You don't know. How secure are you anyway? Your country, Chrysostom compared it to the resources of this world and earthly wealth. Kinsfolk. He called it your former way of life and behavior and vices that have been related to us from our birth by a connection, as it were, of a certain affinity or consanguinity. If you don't know what consanguinity means, hey, if being with me is in good company, you're in good company, because I didn't know either. I looked it up. Consanguinity. A relationship by blood or a common ancestor, a close affinity. Listen, there's a way that we are born and we're oriented. We're just born into this world, and it's a world with its issues, and we have things handed down to us. Did some premarital counseling uh, just to, to think about this uh, idea of our father's house and who we were. A couple came in. This is back in Delaware 15 or 20 years ago. And I said, okay, getting ready to do your, your wedding, and we're going to talk, and we're going to have six months of this. And I said, so just initially... Just describe your, 
your relationship, describe who you are with each other and, and how you see things. And I've never forgotten this. This was so funny and clever. The guy was Irish and the, the woman was Italian. He goes, we are potatoes and tomatoes. <laughs> and he said, they go together pretty good, but potatoes are different than tomatoes. We're Irish, we're Italian. And there are things that we've even found, things that our families did that are the same, but things that are different just because of that. And there's a nature that we spring from. And they recognize that. And they recognize as they put potatoes and tomatoes together, uh, how's it going to fit? How's it going to work? Well, Scandinavian-rooted guy got married to a Cuban. As far as the dinner eating part was, when in Iowa, for me, it was meat, potatoes, and a vegetable. And maybe a rhubarb pie for dessert, maybe. We were lucky. It was good. For Paula, it was black beans and rice, and boy, if there was some squid in there and some... Uh, all that good stuff. And we would go to Red Lobster and I would order steak. I didn't even have any seafood first few times. Because I didn't know seafood. What's seafood? <laughs> um, you put these things together. We are who we are. We have our roots. We have our stuff. There's a reason why we relate to certain things and in certain areas. We come out of it. But you think about God saying to Abraham... Jesus saying to his disciples, you are oriented one way. Come out from that. Thinking of a funny story as I look at Sandy. So we have the best mechanic in the whole world. You want to buy a used car, you want an honest man and a wonderful wife, Maggie, who's so good and great workers. He's Ecuadorian. So we had Paul's truck in there just getting it looked at and, and Paul is his name. He was looking over it and I said, now my last mechanic was Ecuadorian. I said, I'm, I think you are, but are you, is Ecuador your roots or Mexico? He said, Ecuador. I said, okay, tell me about the food. I said, tell me about hamster on a stick. <laughs> and he laughed, and the kid that was doing our bill while Paul was talking, he smiled to himself. <laughs> and Paul said, well, it's pretty good actually, but I wouldn't do it here. He said, but let me tell you about our seafood. And he went on and on and said, Sandy told me all about the beautiful seafood and the dinners and all that. And Paul waxed eloquent about his roots. Um, we have our stuff we're born with. We have our, our, our things we eat. We have our things that we, that we um, are oriented to. And in the world, we are oriented one way. And God calls us out of that way. Again, scariest verse in the Bible to me, maybe not to you, but to me, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, it's the word any I hate. And then I hate this word, the love of the Father is not in him. And I hate that word not because it confronts me. What does that mean? And I want to know what it means. And I don't want to go overboard and, and start doing uh, crazy stuff uh, and misinterpret that text. I'll tell you how somebody misinterpreted it. We got, got a couple minutes, right? One of my teachers in seminary talked about this pastor he had. This is down south, Mississippi or Alabama. He said this pastor loved football. Particularly, he loved the NFL. You couldn't get a sermon without a couple NFL uh, uh, um, illustrations. He talked about it to the point where the 
people were tired of hearing about the NFL, even the ones that liked football. But then that pastor said, wait a minute, that's worldly. And he changed his whole orientation. And all I talked about was how it was wrong for him to watch the NFL. And the people said, we like the old pastor better than like the NFL than this one here. That's, we don't even know if he's overboard or what he's doing on that. Uh, figure out what it means to be like the world and not of the world. Michael Horton said this. I thought I thought of it, but probably I heard it from him because then I heard him say it later. I said, I bet I heard that from him. And then I thought it was an original thought with me. Uh, either way, listen. He said most Christians, where the Bible says you are to be in the world but not of it. He said most Christians are of the world. They're very worldly. They're just isolated. They're not in it. We're to be in the world, they're just not of it. And, and he talked about those little power games we play with each other and those structures and those gossips and those, those uh, one-upmanship. So worldly. Even while we refrain from the world, we say, Called out, though, there is a separate, there is a distinction, there is something that we're to be as Christians. Enjoy your football, enjoy your music, enjoy all of that. That's, that's fine. That's, whatever you do is between you and God with the Holy Spirit in, and it's not my business. What I do and what you do are, are different things. But you're called to be separate when you're outside of the world. You're supposed to think, diff- think there's a way to think Christianly. He said, that kinsfolk, that's your way of life. Abraham, come out of your country, come out of your kinsfolk. And then Chrysostom, or, or whichever church father it was, said, your father's house, every vestige of this world which the eyes gaze upon. Final illustration on this point. I was in Cantonment, Florida, which is right outside of Pensacola. I was a youth pastor we had some families that traveled a little bit. There was this group of girls that went to Pace High School and Milton High School. I would meet with, every morning I would meet with a different, I had different kids from different high schools. We'd meet at Burger King or someplace, have a, have a hamburger, or not a hamburger, have a breakfast croissant or something. And we'd talk, and we were going, we did some great stuff. J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, all that stuff. But these girls from, from Milton and Pace, they said, Pastor, you know what we're going to do? They were kind of new to the church. Their families had just found us. And so I was out there. I didn't want to make them be left, left out, you know, of the, of the circle, trying to include them in. They said, we're going to pick a day next week. We're all going to wear a white robes to school. And we're not going to speak. We're just going to nod. And, we're going to... and I said, why would you do that? They said, to show that we're different from the world. I said, well, you're going to, you're going to show that for sure. And then he said, what do you think of that? I said, I don't think that's a good idea. I advised him against it. I said, that's probably going to succeed in attracting attention to you, but they're going to miss the point that you're trying to reflect. Uh, I said, how about this? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And most of those girls were happy that I said that, but the one who I think it was her idea, she didn't like that, but we killed that idea. Uh, being separate and being different from the world is... is, is, is not what we think. It's not be weird. It's not put on a t-shirt and say, shoot me, I'm a Christian. It is live Christianly. Get up in the morning and read your Bible and pray and, 
and say, God, I'm a sinner. You've forgiven me. Now, how can I, how can I go into this world and do what's right? How can I live for God? Maybe there's an opportunity, but there is a way to live to be called out from our natural instincts, which are worldly, because we're born worldly, and God calls us out. Next thing Stephen told his religious murderers about their father Abraham was that there was a promise for Abraham as he obeyed and followed God. Abraham was called out from where he was to live a life that was different and be different. But there's promises attached to that. Verses 5 through 7. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised, promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them. I'll judge that nation that's doing that to to your people, he says, and afterwards you will come out and worship me in this place. There's a promise that he gave. Just think about that promise for a moment. The land. If you want to go deep, do a study of the land in the Old Testament. It's more than a physical land. As I was pondering this land and this place, the first thing I thought of was Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make a place and a dwelling place and and, in my father's house, and depending on what translation, many mansions, many dwelling places, but I'm going to take you there. And there's a, a spiritual place. But then you go a little deeper and you think with some of these who say Jesus is the land. Jesus is your security. If we're talking about a spiritual, emotional place where you you have to be uprooted from one, you're going to sink your roots down into another. And as Christians, your roots are in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 1, 19-22. This is is where where I I get this and and where where people uh, say this. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The fulfillment of all the promises are attached to Jesus, his person and work, what he did for you, your relationship with God because of Jesus. And Paul said in Corinthians, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is he who establishes us with you in in Christ and has anointed us, and also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Gospel is this. We were spiritually dead, as Abraham was, as the fishermen at their nets were, as Matthew the tax collector was. We were dead, although we were physically alive and wrapped up in our natural selves. We were taking revenge on people when we felt like they earned it. We were hating ourselves sometimes and loving ourselves too much other times. We were hating other people. We were lying. We were unfaithful in our lives, unfaithful maybe even in our thoughts and emotions to the spouses that God gave us. We were wrong. We were sinning. And we were alive. And we were just as alive as the rest of the world. 
And we were called out to a land of promise, which is a right relationship with God through Jesus. What's gotten Stephen into trouble here at Acts 6 and 7, and what's going to get his physical body killed by the end of the episode, is that he says Jesus is the one who makes us right with everything else. The death of Jesus on our behalf to pay for the sins of his people. The resurrection of Jesus that was a conquering of death. And the filling of his people with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's what Stephen is proclaiming and that's the Christian life. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. That's true, by the way. You can work your way to a lot of forgiveness if you realize the person hurting you has probably been hurt somewhere in, in the past themselves. Doesn't excuse it, doesn't make it right, but when you're hurt, a lot of times you lash out and you hurt. But how about this phrase, dead people put people to death. And these spiritually dead people were going to put Stephen to death. Why did the apostles in Acts 5.41, quote, leave the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name? Why did they rejoice? Because it was proof that they weren't the dead people doing the, the, the killing, but they were alive in Christ. Someone makes fun of you for being a Christian not a great thing, hurts. But you can rejoice because they are making fun of you for being a Christian, and you're a Christian, and that means something, doesn't it? Something like eternal life, right with God, something big. What I want you to see here in this text, though, as we, as we keep moving forward on this uh, passage, is that there was not instant gratification there was a promise of the land, and we see what the land means and how it's fulfilled. But he promised it to a great offspring to fill that land to a guy who didn't even have a child yet. We read more in the Genesis story about that. It's an impossible promise that he gave. More than that, there was a promise that there would be hardship along the way. He says, you'll have offspring that will fill this great land. But those offspring are going to be made slaves for a while. 400 years, it says. Jesus made a similar promise when people were following him and he said, foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He made a similar promise when he said, if they're going to do what they're going to do to me, what will they do to you? If this is how they treat the owner of the house, how are they going to treat the hired hand? Servants. And there is a prediction, a promise of enmity, because not everybody is God's child just because they breathe air. That's why I specifically had that Malachi passage read this morning that talks about a distinction. What does this do for us in a time of increasing hatred of true Christianity on a global scale? including here in our own country. And yes, I will certainly pray sincerely by name for our leaders, but I'm starting to include in my prayers 
God, protect us from these people who we're praying the best for because they don't want the best for us if we're true Christians. Because our religion doesn't go with the world's global religion. And see what God's was part of God's promise to Abraham regarding his offspring, though. He said in verse 7, he says after he predicts that they would be sojourners, the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them, he says, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. God's keeping score. You probably don't have to keep as close of score as, as you're keeping. You don't need a list of senators who said this or representatives who said that or whatever. You probably don't need that. Maybe if you're called to do that, and God, that, that's your business. But understand that even if you miss some of the scoreboard, God's keeping score, and God knows everything. And he is for you because you are his. He's called you. He's brought you out. You belong to God. You're going to be just fine in God's economy. Finally, Stephen preaches about the special relationship God has with his people. Two directions. One, the people worship him. Two, he has them circumcised. That's what it talks about here. They worship him. Our primary relationship with God is one of worship. That's how it's supposed to be. We're not to resent God, ignore God, deny God. That, that's kind of the way we do things. Get mad at God. I'll show God. I'll show him. Oh, really? I would just figure out a way to worship him and submit and find out that he's a loving, holy God and he's got your best interests at heart. Our relationship is not to use God or try to manipulate him the way others do with their own false gods. God says they will worship me in their freedom, in the land that I will give them. That's my plan for my people who I've called out. What will be going on in heaven? We'll worship God as people who are set free and have a place prepared for us by the one who we will worship. It's where we're headed. And boy, who can have a long face about that? Who can't smile? I know every single person is smiling behind those masks as they think about heaven and about what God has for them. To distinguish them on this earth by circumcision, and this is where it comes into play here. It says, and he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Um, all we'll say about circumcision this morning, and we'll say more uh, very soon when little Brian gets his baptism, is that circumcision in the old is, 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 is baptism in the new. We draw that parallel. That's why we baptize our kids and families. It's a mark to distinguish them. It's an outward sign that they were God's people. We say an outward sign of an inward conversion sometimes. In our day, it stopped being circumcision, became baptism as that mark. I love the language uh, of our church where it says it's an engagement to be the Lord's. I was thinking about our little buddy, my friend Cameron over here, thinking about baptizing him a couple of years ago. And think of Cameron the baptized making good on his baptism. 
growing up, hearing from all of you what he hears now just in love and a place to come where people, uh, he doesn't even know our names, gave him a quiz and he wouldn't know our names. He knows a couple of our names maybe. He knows who we are by our faces and by the way we respond to him. How do we treat our, our church's children? The calling out was uh, for you and your children and all who are far off. I thought about him. What do we do? Well, we let him sit here in church. We let him listen to what he can hear and pick up on. Go back and throw a ball in the fellowship hall when he grabs our hand. There's something about church and something about God and something about being loved by these people who are strangers and aliens in this world. And he says, I'm a part of that because I was born into that. God does a work in his life. Maybe I'll be out of my mind or dead or gone. And maybe in real life, I can't have a conversation with that young man yet. We can communicate spiritually as we do right now on these things. But boy, in heaven, there we are in Christ, worshiping God in the land that God has prepared for both of us. And you think about family, and Stephen is talking about family and God's people and descendants and and, and them coming and being called out. We distinguish God from everything else by making him our sole object of worship. He distinguishes us from other people by his special call on us, by his promise. And he distinguishes us outwardly by our baptism and our membership and participation with our spiritual family. This is Stephen laying the groundwork. We'll stop with a couple of applications and conclusions for right now. One, your calling by God is real. Your calling, if you're a Christian by God, is just as real as the calling that he had on Abraham. It's just as real as him saying, follow me to Peter and and, uh, Andrew with the fishing nets and James and John. Your calling is just as real, just as personal. Think about that. And let that be an encouragement to you. God, the Bible says God prayed all night, one of the Gospels, he prayed all night, And then he went out and he chose those whom he wanted. That's the language. He chose those whom he wanted. Say, nobody wants me. Who am I? God wanted you. God. God wanted. God. Big God. The God. You were called by God. You're pretty important stuff. Next, your ultimate destination because you are in Christ is a place where you will be free to worship him properly without hindrance from outside forces, without even the hindrance of your own sins and distractions. His promise to Abraham of the land and his promise to all of us, his disciples, will be fulfilled in him. We're not saying there won't be hardship. What did Jesus himself say? In this world you will have trouble. Fear not, I have overcome the world. Then, a warning for those who've been baptized, but who are God's enemies. A warning. Think of this. The stony Stephen, he was circumcised. He had that mark that he was God's. But the ones stoning him also were circumcised. 
It was something outward that hadn't caught on inwardly. Warning. Don't think your involvement in a church, if there's not a circumcision of your heart, don't think the outward sign is, is going to cut it. First time as a Baptist, I heard somebody say, in a, in a Reformed church, make good on your baptism. I said, there's got to be something theologically wrong with that. Now I'm saying it myself. Make good on your baptism. Okay? And there was one who did. You read about the stoning of Stephen. We're not going to spend time in the, in the sermon when we get to that text. There was a guy named Saul there, approving of what they did, taking their coats. He'd been circumcised. He was into the word. He'd heard the sermon. And then God saved him. So just a reminder. No such thing as too far gone. No such thing as out of God's reach. Three things. I'm, I'm reading, but this is how we, look, see, closed it. Um, three things. As I, uh, I'm reading a book. I'm not going to give the name because I don't want to endorse it yet because I haven't finished it. But it's talking about living as Christians in this world that we're coming to. And this section I just read said basically three things. And I thought about it this week because I was thinking about Stephen. One is living a distinct life that matches your calling. As Stephen did, as Christians, you are to do. Secondly, being willing to forsake all other things except one thing. The truth. What is the truth? This book is based on, title is based on uh, Solzhenitsyn's speech about not living by lies. Anchor yourself. Find what is the truth, and that's what I'm going to hang on to. What is truth? God, show me what's the truth. Let me read your word. What's the truth? I'm going to live a distinct life. I'm going to live the truth. And third, don't worry about the circumstances as you live your distinct life and live the truth. You don't know how it's going to be. You don't know. You don't know. God knows, and you belong to God, and you know ultimately where you're headed if you're a Christian. You're headed to the place where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm preparing a place for you. That's the end result of whatever happens in our lives as Christians and as a church. And it's all because Jesus took our sins upon himself and went to the cross and died in our place. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this section of Stephen's defense. Thank you for your Old Testament. Thank you for those stories which are true. And thank you for what we can learn from them. Help each of us as we live a life of distinction. Following the truth. Trusting you with our fate. In Jesus' name, amen.